The Unconditional Love Podcast is a project dedicated to bringing visibility to all queer folks through the coming out experience. By sharing in the coming out experience, we bring forward the self-realizing journey of one's gender and or sexual identity. Our intention is to validate the many forms of queerness, and more importantly, to connect numerous lives through talks and listenings that inspire new understandings of gender and sexuality. Unconditional Love affirms to contribute and continue in furthering conversations around race, gender, class, and sexuality by highlighting the lives of all queer folks. We hope meaningful talks emerge that reach beyond the podcast itself. My name is Alejandro Echeverria. And I'm Frankie Younger. And this is Unconditional Love. Very nice. Okay. Um, Hello, all. Welcome to another episode of Unconditional Love. Um, My name is Frankie Younger. And today we have uh, our guest, Joshua Leashenko. He is a postdoctoral scholar in the UC Riverside School of Medicine. So thank you for um, being our guest for today. I'm very excited. Thank you for having me. Me too. Yeah. Um, uh, Joshua was my professor at one point um, at Riverside City College. Uh, you were my first linguistic anthropology professor and at that point I was still a linguistics major and then after after your class I, I changed my major um, to anthropology <laughs> and how, how, how long were you uh, were you at Riverside uh, RCC right yeah I was an adjunct there until 2019 oh okay um, so I was there uh, for a few years in between my leaving UC Riverside for a few years and then coming back to the program to finish my PhD very nice yeah. Yeah, I think when I met you, you were in the process of doing PhD-related activities. Activities. <laughs> and as I, quickly, as I quickly learned, uh, doing a PhD is not always a linear process. And mm-hmm. it often involves pauses and taking breaks. And yeah, that eventually happened. But then eventually I came back and I finished. So still at UCR today. That's good to know. And that, that, uh, not that I want to get a doctorate, but it kind of gives me hope if I were to ever continue, um, like doing higher education, but, but Hey, you know, life isn't, uh, there isn't a script we might think there is, but there actually, there isn't. It's definitely not one here, right? right? Yeah. Very true. <laughs> yeah. And you, you can tell. Uh, actually, every word we have said so far has been pre-written. It's, oh, yeah. We've been practicing um, for a very long time to make it sound natural. So if it doesn't, you know, that's why. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so uh, the basis of this podcast is a single kind of open-ended question it is um what is your coming out story what is my coming out story where shall i begin um the beginning the beginning yeah i usually to direct people i say when did you come out to yourself because you have to come out to yourself first you know that's a really difficult question to answer because um there wasn't a moment where i just started saying i'm gay I remember the first time I actually did that, like, but it, I'd already realized it before. But the first time I actually said to myself, I'm gay, was in 2010. Mm-hmm. Um, and I was in the car alone. Mm-hmm. And I said it out loud for the first time. And it was very shocking and something that was really uncomfortable at the moment. And then I think I eventually came out to the first person in my life and saying the words, I'm gay, um, in fall of that year. So fall of 2010 was when I started the coming out journey. How, how old were you? How old was I? Um, in 2010, I was 20, I turned 23 oh, in the okay. fall. So I was 23. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. Well, what, what, what kind of, what led up to that, to that sort of big moment in the car? Like, was there, was there something, I mean, you know, cause it didn't, maybe it just didn't, I don't know, but maybe it didn't just come out of nowhere. Maybe there was some, maybe there's some story behind leading up to that moment in the car or something. Yeah. I was in my early twenties and, um, of course was still in the closet and I knew that I was not straight. I knew that I was gay, but I didn't want to say it. Um, I, w- I came from a very conservative evangelical Christian family. 
um, or homophobia was and still is just the norm. And so there was a lot of hesitancy around um, reconciling my, my sexuality. Um, but that, that day, you know, I was in my early 20s. I had started graduate school at that point. Um, and I was coming into my own as an adult. And I hadn't had a relationship, nor um, had I allowed myself to freely explore all the potential for what that might look like for me. So I think that day I was in Orange County, and I had just gone to a Target and the, the guy that was checking all my items out at Target, he was cute. Um, and I remember thinking that he was cute. And I think that I assumed that he was flirting with me a little bit, or I wanted to think that he was flirting with me. So when I got into the car, um, I just started thinking about that. I was a little bit obsessed with it for a few hours, just like rolling it around in my mind, like flirting with another guy. What does that mean for me? And then I just blurted out, I'm gay. And from that, it took around six months for me to actually like tell my first friend that, that truth. Whoa. That sounds like, well, for me, that sounds kind of like a long time to just hold that. Is there, was there like, what was the catalyst for deciding I'm going to tell somebody? I started seeing someone kind of behind the scenes mm. a little bit. I wasn't very serious, it didn't last very long, but it was the first time, the first experience that I was having um, where I was allowing myself to interact with like thinking of myself as gay. You know, of course, as a teenager, you know, I had all of those experiences, even sexual experiences with men, um, but I never, I always was in denial. Like, oh, I'm doing this, but I'm not actually gay. This is a stage or something, it's a phase I'll grow out of, you know, mm. that kind of rhetoric. Um, so it was in the context of exploring feelings and exploring intimacy and then finally feeling like, Hey, I'm not getting any younger, not that your early twenties is old. Um, but maybe I should just start the process of revealing myself to some people and see how it feels, see how it fits, you know, um, taking on the title, um, and then doing the self work of getting to myself, getting myself to a place where I can live openly and publicly um, in my truth. You, you mentioned, you mentioned sort of the, the phase uh, idea. How, how long would you say that phase lasted? I mean, cause there seems, there seems to be some, some experience. So you seem to be sort of marking time with this idea of that truth. Right. But, but, the, and then you mentioned a phase, which seems that there's a, a, a moment before the truth, right? What, what, how long did that phase last before it was, you know, sort of solidified with, with your truth? Mm. Well, not to go back too far, but I remember feeling different when I was five years old. I remember socially relating to people in different ways um, all, all my life, knowing that I was different, um, knowing that the experiences that I was having internally didn't necessarily match what I heard people speaking about, like in public, people who were my same gender, people who were, um, you know, dating and going through all that process of, of, of figuring out their sexuality in that sense. So I knew that I was different um, and I had experiences growing up um, that led me to, to recognize that, that part of my subjectivity. But getting to the actual like recognition that this is who I am, this is a part of who I am, it really was a, a lifelong process, I think, um, so as far as I could re ever remember, as far as I was ever socializing with other people. Um, and then at that moment at 23, um, it was, it, it was, as, it was as if I had built like this house of cards around me and then all just kind of collapsed in on itself or something like that, you know, um, where all of the defenses, all of the, um, uh, the barriers that I placed between myself and other people started to just come down very, very rapidly. Um, and I was lucky enough to have an extraordinarily supportive, like group of friends and colleagues that as I started to become more comfortable with revealing more about myself, um, it became more and more normalized. And um, my career choices in, in academia, it was definitely a very safe space to be who I was. So I never really feared being who I was um, in academia. And within a year or two, I just felt very secure, relatively speaking, in who I was. So it was a really strange, rapid process after a, over a decade of being in this kind of intermediary intermediary period of um, 
you know, not really knowing what words to say about myself and trying to hide things and being in denial to all of a sudden just being this gay adult and not being okay. It's kind of weird looking back on it. So many years in the future. The, um, the first person that you came out to, well, two-parter question, it, who were they in relation to you? And, um... I don't know if this is a leading question, but was there any, like, adrenaline? Because, I mean, there was for me. It was like, oh, gosh. So. Yeah, um, I came out to my, to my best friend, Sarah, who's still my best friend to this day. Um, she was the one person. And I, and I knew that I had a lot of people in my life that would be understanding and supportive. But for some reason, like, it was, uh, this was a, a detail about myself that was so intimate that I knew that even if I was comfortable with it, like, I am revealing something new about myself. Whether people are assuming things about me, which people totally were, you know, walks like a duck, talks like a duck is a duck. Um, but for her, I felt very safe in revealing this intimate part of myself. And it was like I was ripping open my body and showing my insides. It felt very vulnerable and scary, and I was shaking. I remember um, I was also in the car when this <laughs> happened. So the, the car has been a very, uh, you know, through line here in the car and um i just kind of told her i blurted it out and and then she was you know in, in shock that i eventually said it like she wasn't shocked that i was but she was in shock that i said that i was gay that was the shocking part for her and then we ended up having just a very long conversation and i think she was the only friend that i told for like two months and in those two months it was this little secret that her and i had and it was a really scary and you know new time but also I, I look back at it with like fondness like it was a it was um a, a safe place for me to just kind of explore my feelings and have a sounding board yeah you know? yeah um you said you said uh you're you come from an evangelical background yes. I also come from that background um would you mind explaining a little bit about Mm. if you did you come out to them and if so how did that go <laughs> um so i ended up uh telling my mom in the summer of 2012 so after i'd been out for a while i'd actually had a boyfriend i'd gone through a breakup the whole nine yards right um and i have been avoiding it for so long and I literally got as far away from my parents, like geographically as I could. I was in Finland because um, I was about to do field work in Russia. Originally, I was going to be doing research in Russia. So I was in Finland um, and I called my mom and um, I just told her. And um, she told me that she knew, um, which didn't sit with me very well. Um, and that it's okay and that she didn't agree but that she loved me anyways and she knew that i was very upset and she wanted to make me not upset and so she just said some very kind things and then that was it um but then that that, that didn't stick and then of course um she told my dad without me um without my consent um, and that, which a part of me was relieved in a way because I didn't have to do that, like tell my dad, because I was especially afraid to tell him. But at the other, in, in retrospect, I think when I think about it now, I'm like, well, that was pretty messed up. Like I should have, that, that you removed the opportunity for me to have that conversation on my terms. Um, and yeah, it, it wasn't great. It was, um, you know, my mom would say her piece and her perspectives and would try and encourage me to see her point of view, which I knew her point of view. I was raised in that world. I knew what they believed about homosexuality. That wasn't, that wasn't new for me. Um, my dad then, um, he, the first time he saw me, he couldn't even look at me in the eye. Um, he couldn't have a conversation with me. And then the months after that, he proceeded to try and help, you know, quote unquote help. Um, through you know repeated text messages and emails uh, with Bible verses and um, you know encouraging me to to turn away from my quote evil ways and 
for the first time in my life, I really established clear boundaries with my parents. Um, I stopped talking to them for stopped talking to them for uh, a little period. Um, I, I think that they were convinced that okay, he, we, we, if we can just hook him in a little bit, we can change him. We can we can get him back to church or whatever, because they knew I wasn't going to church at that point. And so that also brought in other layers of anxiety for them. Um, and I just said no, like this is not this is not how this is going to happen. Like I'm not going, like I'm not changing. This is this is not something that you change. And I made it very clear, like if you want me around, you like you you cannot just keep harassing me. Um, and so it stopped, the harassment stopped, but there was what I could feel a very deep rooted resentment, um, that yeah, continues. Really? So has much changed? Have they softened at any, a a modicum or are they still like firm? Um, it's been a back and forth process. So I am, I'll be 35 later this year. So it's been a number of years. Um, because I came out, came out to them when I was oh, around 24. Um, and let's see. It was a, a weird thing that we didn't really talk about, but like they just kind of like played nice and things got a little surfacey. And it, for a while it was just this, I, I didn't really know what I wanted to say. They didn't know what they wanted to say. So we just kind of left it. I didn't really talk about it. Um, but then I met... Um, a person that I started dating who I eventually married that I'm still married to uh, my husband um, a few <laughs> years after that um, and it was probably within like I actually met him like within the year of them finding out that I was gay which in retrospect again seems such a, such a short period of time but back then it didn't seem like a short period of time at all um, I guess when you, as you get older like how you perceive time changes um, and so they eventually met him probably after a year that we were together. Before we got married, they met him. Um, and it was fine. Like, it was surprisingly fine. Um, they were both very friendly and both very welcoming to an extent. You know, at first we would stay in a hotel because it was kind of awkward staying in their house. But then eventually, like, they just invited us to stay at their house, like, a lot. And it became normal for them. And it was really positive. There were some really positive changes, and I really appreciated it. Um, but there was always a an under-the-surface type of tension. And as time wore on, that tension started to bubble more and more. And there were, I think, tolerances that they were that, that were pushing me on their boundaries, and I had tolerances that you know I was struggling with on the other end too. Um, so. You know, long story short, there's been this ebb and flow of like conflict, things being said, things being taken with offense, uh, me interpreting things that they say as evidence of their lack of support. Um, so I have a very um, tenuous relationship with my parents. I have I don't speak to my father, and I speak to my mother every now and then. When you say you don't speak to your father, do you mean like you've gone essentially no contact? Yeah, it's been pretty awesome. <laughs> frankly yeah I can uh I can see that I've I had a period of that with uh parts of my family and it was um pretty peaceful uh for a time um uh I don't know I'm glad you mentioned that you uh got married because I knew that but I didn't want to bring it up so my question is did you have a ceremony and if so did your parents attend? Who who attended, and how like how was that? Yeah, so we got married um, in 2015, so relatively recent after. Um, 2015. You know, re- well, sorry, relatively recent after like marriage equality became like universal. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Yeah. So um, it was relatively quickly um, so after uh, marriage equality became like, universal in the United States, um, and. It's funny because, you know, we were together, we'd already shared finances and insurance policies and cats and all all these things that were very just, I don't know, I think very rudimentary in a long-term relationship. And we decided to get married just to to further, like, consolidate that shared life. Um, For us, you know, there wasn't the the grandiose romantic proposal. Um, There wasn't even an exchanging of rings. It was just, oh, we should get married. 
Like that seems like a good idea. And oh yeah, we're going to go visit my best friend in Seattle. Why don't we just get married there and she can be the witness and it'll be nice and, and, and easy. Um, and so no, to answer your question, my parents and not, neither of our parents were there. Um, and you know, his parents were okay. They, they understood that we wanted to get married for, you know, a lot of different reasons in terms of finances and consolidating our lives together. And they were understanding with that. Uh, my parents were not ready to have a gay married son. Um, and so I was not ready to even have any, any type of public celebration because frankly, they would have ruined it for me. Mm. I'd be too busy worrying about their emotions. I'd be too busy worrying about their perspectives and to actually enjoy it. So, you know, we, we were the last couple to get married on the very last day you could get married in December of 2015 in Seattle City Hall. It was just us two, my best friend, her mom, who um, I adore. It's always been a source of support for me and, uh, and a judge. And um, we got married and there's a window with Mount Rainier in the background and it was amazing. Um, went out to a nice dinner. Uh, went out to a local a gay grunge bar and had a can of champagne to celebrate. All they had was a can of champagne to okay. celebrate. I never, I didn't know that was a thing. Oh yeah, you have yeah, wine and champagne in cans. Oh, we just got married. Give us champagne. Here's a can of champagne. So it's become a fun tradition. Every year anniversary, we buy the same cans of champagne. Um, and so, yeah, that's it. Made sense for us, and I don't have any regrets about that. You know, like, of course, in a perfect world, I would have loved for everyone to be on board and it to be larger. But at the same time, like, um, I'm not the most like outwardly, like romantic, touchy feely person. So, you know, it was fine. Um, and I, I think so fondly back to those memories. But yet yeah, also to answer your question, no, parents are not there. Hmm. Um, you so you got married in Washington state. Was there like a different legality or oh, okay, no. there wasn't any particular no. people assumed, but no, it was already legal in California, gotcha. but um, we happened to just be in Washington and we just kind of made a destination out of it. Yeah. That's kind of really cool, actually. <laughs> you, you, you mentioned, you mentioned how sort of that you you feel like your parents' emotions and feelings would have, would have ruined that moment. And I, and I was kind of struck by. I mean, if, it seems to, to me to be common that you came out to your mother and your mother said that she already knew, um, which, which seems to me then to mean that your mother was having some experience of that, right, before you came out to her. Um, and, and, and I don't know if she included your father in the conversation or, or not, but your mother was having a conversation, at least with herself, about what this might mean. And, and I wonder, did you feel that in any way? Um, as as a younger person, did did you feel your mom having this conversation without you or by herself, or and 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 did that impact your 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 own sort of growing up or your sense of yourself? Or um, I got really accustomed to censoring myself growing up uh -huh. um, in any way possible, and I became really accustomed to just trying to avoid 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 any type of indication that might. Um, reveal my sexuality um, so I of course like had a feeling that maybe she assumed or maybe they both my both my parents assumed something given that I was in my early 20s I'd never had a serious girlfriend I don't, I don't talk about having girlfriends that kind of thing mm -hmm. um, but when she told me that she knew when, when I think back at it think back on it like I, I feel like, I can't help but feel like she really dropped the ball, you know, regardless of her own personal beliefs or opinions. When you know, when you know something about your child and you know something about the environment that you personally created for your child that is potentially toxic and harmful mm -hmm. to that reality of your child and you don't try and intervene in any way or try and, I don't know, address it. Um, to me, it, it was, I don't know, a, a source of, I don't want to say abandonment, but like, did this not matter enough to you? Mm. And it's funny because in saying all this, I, I, I block, I actually block out a lot of my, or block out a lot of my memories. I'm starting to remember a few more things <laughs> about my childhood. Yeah. When I was 10 years old, I tried telling my mom that I thought that was gay. Um, oh, wow. and I, and I, I purposely don't always remember that 
And some, and I have actually told that story to friends and they have to remind me of that because it was a really traumatic uh, experience. And she's like, oh, no, you're not. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're fine. No, you're not. And maybe something from that period when I was around 10 years old stuck in her head and she potentially noticed patterns. But again, the environment that was created for, for me growing up was one that, where homophobia was standard. So that, so that truth, your truth at, say, I think it was 23, right? Correct. Was, was probably her truth at 10 years old, right? Yeah. And, I, and I, I'm, I'm interested in that because I think, I think uh, oftentimes it seems to me that there could have been some pain around that from what you're telling me as far as the, the, the ideals, right, in, in your household. And, you know, as, as, as you probably know, oftentimes we make others feel our pain, right? And so I was, I'm, I'm interested to know how that truth that your mother probably accepted at a certain point, right, but it sort of influenced your experience um, there at, at the house, right? And so, so was sexuality sort of an explicit conversation at your house, like how to be this, how to be that, don't be this, don't be that, or was it just something you sort of picked up through sort of more of an implicit kind of... So on two fronts, yeah. Um, you know, I remember my dad telling me as a teenager the worst possible thing I could ever do was have sex before marriage. That's the okay. worst thing I could ever do. So all that shame, you know, the evangelical shame. Um, but then, in terms of like homosexuality, you know, I remember being you know called gay on the playground at ten or eleven, and so then my parents like horrified then having to explain you know the the quote evils of homosexuality to me as a child so they tried to shield me from growing up but um you know growing up like you know faggot was the word that's what that was the word that my dad used to refer to gay people uh, um you know Gay people were were nothing but degenerates and disease-filled people. And he grew up in the Bay Area. Um, okay, I was going to ask how did how yeah. did how did that sort of how did that gayness enter his yeah. life? Right, yeah, he, like, grew, <laughs> he, had a, he had a front row seat to the AIDS crisis. <laughs> okay, um, okay, in the nineteen eighties. Okay, um, so he he grew up ten minutes from San Francisco uh, in a suburb. Um, so yeah, that was very real. Um, you know, and I, I grew up in Northern California too. And so, like on TV, you know, you'd watch the gay pride parade on the on the local news. That was just oh. the norm in in yeah. Northern California. It wasn't a strange thing at all. It was the norm to watch, like as a child, to watch news anchors waving rainbow flags, like while they're casting the news in celebration of Pride. Oh. So that was in stark contrast. So that, um, that environment, this very somewhat inclusive environment, even in the '90s, kind of led to an even increased radicalism, right, in in the mind of. Of especially my father, my parents in general, and the folks that they kept company with, especially related to the church. Okay, so the public conversation sort of bled into the to the family conversation, yeah. or or was the 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 sort of context right in which your your parents were sort of talking to you about these kinds of things? Or not even talking to me, but talking around me. Right. There you know? okay. okay. Like what I would hear, what I would pick up on. Like, and it was really interesting because um, when I came out to my mom, you know, I'm like, I know what you believe. I know, I know what, how this works for you. You know, I, I've, I grew up with you. And she's like, oh, we, we never talked about it when you were a child. We never talked about it. <laughs> and I'm like, um, false. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, I still, I still laugh at that because it's just so comical in my mind, uh, like kind of like cognitive dissidence. You, you, also, you also mentioned that before that, sort of moment when you when you accepted your truth that you had had relationships before that right you you kind of you kind of you kind of sort of went over it really quickly yeah um but but you mentioned that you had already had some experiences mm -hmm. right what well, were not not to get yeah. into any graphic details or anything but sort of what, what were those what were those experiences and, and how did you make sense of those experiences? Yeah, so as a teenager, I had sexual experiences um, to varying degrees with like other young men my age. Everything was consensual. Um, I often chop it up to, um, you know, what kids do when they're teenagers, right? They experiment. And, um, and it was never with anyone who was gay, ne never, never, even in college, right? It was never with anyone who was gay. Mm. Everyone was straight. Um, and it was just something that you did. And so, yeah, it, it, it's interesting how I made sense of that. 
was extreme guilt, extreme shame, extreme self-hatred, layers upon layers of depression and anxiety. You know, growing up, hell was a very real place. Um, And it was this constant, like, paranoia of needing to make sure that I wasn't going there. Mm. And constantly, like, recognizing, like, oh, like, acting upon this is is the sinful part, right? So if I acted upon it, then... Oh, well, I just won't do it again until like six months later when I did it again. Mm-hmm. So, do, do you feel? Do you? You may not even be able to answer this, but did those other folks have that same feeling about about the the experimentation? Or I don't know, no idea. So you, no. you haven't. Okay, so I, because I wonder if if you you mentioned you said that you know those, they were they were straight though, right? Yeah. I, I wonder if they're still straight, right? Is that is that the, as far as yeah. I know? Yes, they're all still straight. Okay, yeah, okay, yeah. There are a lot of straight people that have had, uh, I guess, gay experiences. Like, I don't know what it is, but there have been a lot of straight guys in my life who would like. Um, and the way they would go about it is though I was a priest and they were in confessional and I'm like, so I, I've learned that, okay, like <laughs> it can be, it can just kind of be a thing that, that happens, you know, and that's kind of what I told them. Like it doesn't necessarily, it doesn't have to reflect on you as a person uh, unless you really think that it needs deeper investigation, but yeah, so <laughs> But that's part of the truth then that you're talking about, right? Because yeah. in order, in order, it seems to me that in order for you to embrace not simply who you were, but a life that you wanted for yourself, right? That then required that, that you embrace something else, right? And so I think for, for, for me, it seems to be, that seems to be part of it, right? That yeah. that moment was so important for you because it was time for you to figure out how to create the life you wanted, right? Mm-hmm. And how to be right uh in that life right yeah and it was interesting because all of a sudden all these experiences that i had in the past which weren't that many but they were there they which were the source of like deeply rooted shame and fear and anxiety all of a sudden like when i came out were oh i have a track record like oh (laughs) like i'm not a complete novice to this world Mm -hmm. you know and so it was interesting because things you know everyone just assumed that i had never had sex and i even told that to friends like you know, oh yeah, I I don't use this language anymore, but oh, I'm still a virgin. You know, um, I, I even said that into my twenties, and because I didn't want to acknowledge the experiences that I had, but then all of a sudden I had to rewrite my history mm-hmm. with my friends. Like, oh, actually, like you've known me for this you know, six years or so, but these are things that have been about a part of me that you've never been privy to, but now I'm inviting you into that, um, and that was a really interesting moment and I actually enjoyed revealing that because it was fun watching the shock in my friends faces mm. um, of like they had this one image of me and for all the anxiety of like oh what are you going to think of me when I say that I'm gay that would that, that helped me overcome it, it was because I, I didn't get I got to kind of relish in telling them about <laughs> my my sexcapades I guess <laughs> for lack of a better term mm-hmm. um, so yeah that was an interesting period of time this might might be a, a silly question, but in, in the way that you're telling the story and and sort of the moment and then the context and the background and, and the after, did, did that moment in the car sort of legitimate you or your sense of not who you were, but it did, did it legitimate your experiences in a way? Did it, did, it, did it solidify all that stuff somehow and make it seem legitimate? Now, the time in the car by myself or when I came out to my friend? Either. Either. Yeah. (laughs) Lots of times in the car. Um, So, yes, it did. The first time by myself when I said I'm gay out loud, um, it did, it made, it made it more real. And I think if I hadn't had that moment of saying it to myself, I wouldn't have gotten to the place where I felt comfortable telling someone six months later. Um... But yeah, having it in your head and not revealing something is a very different thing. Because when it's, when it's in your head, you're not making it real in a way by saying it. It's, it hasn't been 
you know, made public, nor is it made like realized by others, right? It's just kind of existing in your head. So it's in this kind of fluid space where do you actually think this? Do you actually believe this? And so be, allowing it to sit in my head made it less real and it made it, and it made my growing up a little bit more bearable because I could distance it. You know, I, it, it was just, it's just in my mind. It's just in my head. You know, I'm not saying it. I'm denying it. That's it. But then the second that I started saying it out loud, it, it, it transformed in a way. Yeah, that's that. Okay, that's the word then. That's the word, that transformation. I think for me, I've uh, sort of the experience of being young and not knowing who you are and not having any way to connect one experience to the next, to the next, to the next, in order to then think, okay, these experiences somehow are related and make me who I am, right? And I don't, it's not just in the sense of sexuality. I think it's something that, that young people go through. And then there's that moment that you come into yourself. And then all of those other things, whether it's true or not, you put them together as part of the story, right? Mm-hmm. And it's that putting it together as part of the story that then builds, right, the person that you see now and the person that you feel that you are that then creates that, perhaps that transformation. And I, and I noticed, <clears throat> even as a, a young person, you know, when I was a young person, but I noticed my own kids going through it, right, that sort of moment of trying to figure out, right, how all of this stuff makes any sense mm-hmm. at all, you know yeah. what I mean? It, it seems that that moment for you was part of, part of that, right, putting that all together. Yeah, um, and it's really interesting because I have never, no one's ever asked me before today, like, tell me about your coming out experience, right? They might ask me smaller questions or more pointed questions so having this larger question and larger conversation has been really allowing me to, to, to sew together all these little disparate parts of my story and like I'm, a quilt yeah yeah so I'm actually really grateful and happy that I get this is going to be recorded and I can listen to it again yeah um, and you can show people and stuff yeah like here I am um, so if anyone asks you can be like you know what just listen to this just, I don't just feel listen, like it just listen to it <laughs> Just keep it on the your podcast. Phone. Yeah, here you go. Phone. There you go. Push, push, play. Yeah, but but it also seems to me that that sense though is I don't want to maybe requiring because it's too strong of a word, but that sense of that legitimation or transformation is also partly a requirement for being to imagine what might come next, right? And what might a future like really look like you know what I mean with without that I wonder it, it, it's really hard to project that far into the future right because it, it might be it might cause a lot of anxiety right so yeah definitely yeah. so when you, you when you came out to yourself you were already not living with your folks anymore Correct. yes okay um, <clears throat> so there was there was never like a fear of like uh, being kicked out physically no um that's good i I did have fear concerning um like financial support Mm -hmm. because i was still in my early 20s and i actually just bought a car and they were helping me pay for that and um i was a little bit concerned regarding um financial responsibilities luckily that didn't come to a head Mm. um for me, and I and I do count myself fortunate in that in that regard, and, and there was never any concerns about being kicked out. Frankly, I think it's the the exact opposite. I think even to this day, if they could choose, they'd have me live in their home, with the hope that they could be a, a positive witness to, you know, detract from who I am. Another transformation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so I think they're still in that world um, where it's like if if we just keep them closer. Which has done nothing has done nothing but you know make me run in the other direction even harder even faster, mm-hmm. and I feel like a lot of coming out narratives are somewhat dichotomous, right? You either have like these super like supportive like P flag parents, or people who eventually get there. Um, maybe were resistant at first, but then all of a sudden you know they they start being these like av- you know very hardcore or somewhat nominal allies. And then you have the people who are just like kicking their kids out, who are very abusive. My parents aren't either of those things. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they were they were not the they were they would never you know be the people to kick me out and to um, yeah, be physically abusive or you know anything like that. 
um, but they are never going to be marching in a gay pride parade, mm-hmm. um, and nor are they going to change the way that they vote um, in consideration of, of their son's well-being, mm-hmm. um, and which that's painful, um, or at least questioning you know, their, their electoral behaviors. Um, I just try not to think about it too much. <laughs> <clears throat> yeah, you know. Gosh. <clears throat> yeah, that's that, that that is something that I've kind of gone back and forth on. How, how do you manage that? Um, because there is a wall there when you try and explain things to them. And like, no, like they they separate it in their mind. Um, I can still vote for these things and support these causes and still love my gay son. And I'm I'm supposed to be the tolerant one, right? That reverse tolerance kind of ideology. Yeah. The... <clears throat> <clears throat> What's it called? Like a catch-22 in a way. Yeah. Um, Circling back to like uh, religion and stuff. um, I think you you had said this, but there was a real, very real fear of of hell. And um, how did you... How did you stop that? Like, I'm actually just asking still. Like, I, I, I get, I have these times where I'm like, oh, you know, oh no, what if, what if they're right about everything? You know what I mean? So I don't know how to get out of that. Does it stop? I, I'm still, I'm, I'm still waiting for it to stop. Okay. <laughs> um, I, I'm still waiting for um, that to leave. Um, okay. And yeah, I, like, I'm, I'm not religious. Um, me, me neither. I, and which is also another point of contention because I've never actually officially had that conversation with my parents. I'm sure they assume, um, but that you're a, a godless heathen, basically, yeah, yeah. <laughs> or somewhere indeterminable. In, in um, I don't, I don't take on the word agnostic. I think the closest thing that I, I like to say is I'm on the atheism spectrum. Um, like I, I do view belief and faith as being a spectrum, yeah. where like I, I do err on the side of atheism. I, I frankly, I hope, like, I don't really put a lot of stock in hope, but I hope that, that there's no God. Like that, that, that would be, if I, if I could choose, there's, there's no higher power. Like that, that is my 100% ideal universe. Yeah. That's what makes the most sense to me. But with, with your background though, do you believe that? Exactly. <laughs> that, and that's, <laughs> that's why I say, right? that's why I say the spec, it's right, a spectrum, right? right? It's, right. Because like I would love to be there, and I can see it, and I can see other people around me finding it and finding so much fulfillment and comfort in that, and I can feel that sometimes. But because of my background, that fear it never goes away, okay. and it can be very debilitating sometimes. Um, yeah, you know. I so. still yeah I still uh, I still get it uh, every once in a while. Um, and straight up, sometimes I'll I'll pray. It's a like as a oh, the, what yes. do you call it? <laughs> as a prayer. backup plan. <laughs> like I don't know. Like try to cover my bases. Just in case. Huh? Um, it's like Pascal's wager, whatever it's called. I do that too. Yeah. Yeah, I find myself doing it, which is interesting. Uh, whenever I whenever I it's occasionally, but whenever I do do it, um, I just kind of sit with it for a minute. Like, what am I doing? What do I actually believe? Do I actually believe in all this? And like personally, like you know, I, great people can believe whatever they want. I, I always say, if if your faith, if your religion, regardless of what it is, helps you make sense of the world around you, and it helps you organize your life in a way that makes sense to you, is meaningful, then by all means, that's great. Like, and there are plenty of like queer Christians out there. And I, yeah. when I was coming out, like I attended an MCC, a Metropolitan Community Church, a church created um, a Protestant denomination created by like queer people and mm-hmm. I tried it out it, it, and, and then I realized that my conflict with religion wasn't solely surrounding my gayness I actually have a other conflict with religion that is beyond it's influenced by my queerness and everything but it's beyond it too and yeah. so um it's not I, I know that if I wanted to be like you know a gay Christian I could be I know that's an option for me, and and I, and I would be able to live with that. And I think my parents would find some comfort in that to an extent. But I'm not interested. Like yeah. I, I don't. Like Christianity just isn't for me. We tried it. I've tried it. 
I've done it. Yeah. Been there, done that. Yeah. It's just, it's not for me. And I think it can be for some people. It's just not for me. And. That's fine. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's fine. That's and fine. That's fine. That's what I always say. <laughs> uh, I, I think I tried to go to a Unitarian mm, church one time. Yeah. And I had a similar experience, but honestly, I can't really um, put it into words what other than my queerness was um, preventing me. I think uh, there was there's a lot of like physical like touching that I wasn't a fan of, like having to hold people's hands is oh, I hate that. not cool with me. People laying on hands and praying over me makes me extremely uncomfortable. Um, a lot of the ritualistic aspects of it. And not to say that ritual is bad. I could probably honestly use some kind of uh, meaningful group gathering ritual-esque things. But... I, I don't know. I guess it was just in the execution. And I, I tried a non-denominational church. I tried an Anglican church. Well, those those weren't really my choices, but, you know, mm-hmm. we had we had, went to two churches. It was insane. Um, it was like we were cheating on the non-denominational church with the Anglican church. The church hopping cheating, yeah. yeah. I remember that from growing up. <laughs> and then I decided... I'm just gonna I'm just gonna give this Unitarian stuff a try and like you know they ha- they have like the, the the rainbow flag in their uh in their windows and stuff and I and I felt welcome but on at a certain point I it was like I was too welcome in a way right I was like uh, <laughs> or even tokenized right like yeah, or, yeah just some kind of anxiety but um but yeah yes um religion is a fascinating thing you know I, I really do find religion very interesting um, and I like that I'm able to speak to faith in a way because of my experiences and I've gotten to the age where like I can parse out the positives and the negatives and um, I can even learn to appreciate elements of my upbringing um, and you know there were things that were happening in church that weren't always consistent with my parents. So my parents hated the holding hand stuff. They hated the touchy-feely stuff. Really? Oh, yeah, they hated it. So uh, there was actually growing up, there was space in my family to be a little bit divergent from the the party line in terms of the church. Um, My parents were a little bit more independent in that way. So a, a lot of my, like, religious trauma that, frankly, does center on my queerness, it wasn't being enforced institutionally. It was, unfortunately, being enforced, like, within the family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, fear of hell <clears throat> in, in, in that regard. The rapture. Oh my gosh. Still scarred I, from, from those. <laughs> I'm kind of a doomer. Um, I don't have a very positive outlook. And I don't necessarily blame anyone in particular. But I do genuinely feel that I was partially raised in a sort of like doomsday cult in a way. Just Well, I think in some ways, like I think certain denominations of Christianity do gravitate more on the apocalyptic. You know, I think, I think that it's fair to classify Jesus Christ as an apocalyptic prophet. Mm. And I think that that speaks to some people of faith. I just, I I don't find a, a, a apocalyptic messaging. Um, I don't don't find it productive in, in my spiritual, (laughs) my ideal, my idealized, um, you know, ways of being spiritual. So. Well, that makes sense, especially when your your identity is wrapped up in sort of what people feel is bringing on right, right. the apocalypse. Or the exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. me. So, yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's me, you know. I'm so, a sign of the times. Yeah. I'm the omen. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> so, so would you say then sort of is that journey still happening, the, the, the coming out part, or, or has that happened and now... You're in in, a, in another phase, or 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 all, or both, or that's a great question. Um, it's so interesting um, because I've never officially come out to any other members of my family. Mm. Um, it was only my mom. My mom told my dad. She told my younger brother. He's fine with it. Um, and. She told, I think, a few of her sisters, and my grandmother, I think, eventually heard, but it's never talked about. 
in my dad's family, they're all nosy. So I'm sure people start, you know, poking around the internet and they, they can find me on the internet and, mm. and, and, and see what's up. Like my Twitter profile has a rainbow flag on it. Um, like another one of the little rainbow emojis. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've never had that conversation. And frankly, I've, I've basically just detached myself from like, mm-hmm. from the vast majority of familial relations. Um, which is still um, a constant source of struggle and, and guilt and shame. And so to answer the question, like, no, it's still a process, you know, like for me and my here and now, like, um, you know, my own research as an anthropologist was engaging queer anthropology. I was studying um, trans healthcare. I still study trans healthcare, even as a PhD with a postdoc. Um, so my world is enveloped with queer people and queer themes um, like I just went to the Harvey Milk breakfast in Palm Springs. Um, I was invited to go through some community partners. Um, so my, my world is just so unbelievably queer. Um, and in many ways I've kind of like left a lot of my past behind for better or for worse. And I don't, and I still haven't all figured it out. I, I don't know what I'm, how I'm going to manage that in the next five or 10 years. Um, So, yeah, it's still a process. Well, that's our show. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll come back for our next episode. In the meantime, for more narratives, please visit culturalmediaarchive.org and click on Archive tab. Feel free to send us an email with any comments, complaints, or suggestions. You can reach me at frankieyounger at gmail.com. And you can reach me at anthonyj at ucr.edu. Take care. Unconditional Love is part of the Youth Citizenship Narrative Project and recorded at the Ethnography Laboratory at UC Riverside. You can send us an email with questions or comments at unconditionallovepodcast at gmail.com. We'll see you next time. Media Archive.